Welcome to the LifeWorks Living Well podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. When I call to mind the image of a person with addiction, I'll admit that I reactively think of people who use the usual hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, meth. After that, the more commonplace and socially accepted substances will come up for me. Nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, that sort of thing. Somewhere down the line, I start to think outside of the realm of chemical substances and broaden to include addictive behaviors, usually things triggered by stuff outside of us, right? Things like gambling, pornography, even social media. It usually takes me a while, if I get there at all, to think of habitual patterns of thought as sharing anything at all to do with the more obvious, more overt addictions. These are more or less for me anyway, wholly self-contained experiences, intimate personal qualia of my own mind. They can include things like stress, sadness, attention, maybe even love. Everybody needs these experiences, of course, to a degree in order to be fully human. But when our relationship to our habits of thinking and feeling becomes a pathological seeking and grasping to the exclusion of other equally legitimate social and emotional needs, that's when we start to see a lot more common ground with addiction, both in terms of behavior and indeed in the brain. My first guest is a world-renowned expert on just this spectrum of experience. Dr. Judson Brewer is an American psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and New York Times bestselling author. He's an associate professor in behavioral science and social sciences and in psychiatry, as well as the director of research and innovation for the Mindfulness Center, all at Brown University. He joins me now on Living Well. Dr. Judd, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Now, you have such an interesting background, not only in hard science, you know, medical science, neuroscience, but also extensive training in, in personal experience with mindfulness meditation. This sort of uh, East meets West approach, I think it really shines through in, in the two of your books that I've read preparing for our talk today, The Craving Mind and Unwinding Anxiety. So, I'm hoping that you can start by operationally defining addiction for us from, from each of a medical and a meditative perspective, but also maybe how those two seemingly separate understandings actually come together quite well. Yeah, the simple definition of addiction that I learned in residency was continued use despite adverse consequences. And so that's a very medical definition. It works very well. And it's also very pragmatic. It, it transcends these classical addictions like you talked about to bring in some of these other non-classical addictions where we think of you know, social media and we think of some of these other things that might not, we not, might not be able to snort through our nose, for example. Now, if you think of some of the mindfulness uh, training practices and even some of the Buddhist psychology that underlies these, craving's really at the heart of it all. If you look back at the tenets in Buddhism, they talk about these four noble truths and all of them relate to craving, you know, craving that is that cause of suffering. Mm -hmm. So whether you are pre, you know, pre-written language <laughs> uh, with Buddhism, uh, or whether you're in modern day, uh, craving is at the heart of a lot of suffering. Now, you know, I, I'm not sure if if this applies to Buddhism or not, but in every scientific field, well, well of course there are in, in, in terms of Buddhism, but in every scientific field, there's certain theories or ideas that make up the, the standard model, right, or the basic kind of conceptual canon uh, of that field. Uh, Reward-based learning or, or Skinnerian operant conditioning, it's, I would argue, one of those core concepts of psychology. Uh, well, of course, it's not a, a panacea. It's the model that uh, you've used to explain addiction in terms of a behavioral habit loop. 
Um, so break that down for us. How are addictions, both in the drug sense, but also in the in the felt sense, in the emotional sense, um, how well are those understood by this learning or habit loop? I would say they're pretty well understood. If you look at most of our behavior, you know, it really boils down to three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And this is actually evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize showing that sea slugs learn very much the same way as humans. And this is through positive and negative reinforcement. So imagine our ancient ancestors who didn't have refrigerators, right? So one thing that they had to do was find food. And so when they found food, their brains had to have a mechanism that said, hey, remember where this food is so you can come back and find it again tomorrow. So the way it works is, you know, we're wandering around the forest or the savanna. We find some food. There's the trigger or the cue. That's the first element. Then we eat the food, right? And, and our stomach says, oh, there's some calories in here. And it sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So this cue leads to a behavior eating, which leads to a result. From a neuroscience standpoint, I think of this as a reward. This is where reward-based learning gets its name. That reward is really this dopaminergic spritz that's more of a memory-based function. It says, hey, remember this. So that's positive reinforcement. It's good. Go back and do it again. Negative reinforcement works very much the same way with a flipped valence. So if you are out in the savannah and you see something running at you and it looks like a big tiger, you run away. So cue, see the tiger behavior, run away. And then the reward is that you survive. So you can, <laughs> you can repeat the process the next day. That's negative reinforcement. So that has been evolutionarily conserved. This was even described in Buddhism. It's, it's reportedly what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his awakening. You know, we actually wrote a paper showing that the parallels between uh, operant conditioning or, or reward-based learning and these Buddhist concepts of dependent origination are very much aligned. So whether you're a sea slug, whether you're, you're somebody in ancient times, or whether you're in modern day, this is, this is how our brains work. Now, in modern day, we also have things where we can... <laughs> We can actually capitalize on those on those processes. So when the neuroscientists started mapping out these these habit loops, um, they said, "Hey, you can actually use this to get people to buy things, to consume things." Uh, and you know, we were historically we were pretty good at consuming things already, but now that whole process can be capitalized so that we do that on everything's on steroids. I hadn't even thought of addictions to things like shopping and spending for that for that reward. Now, actually, related to that, you know, I've, I've heard before, I think in reference to gambling addictions, that it's not the act, it's not the gambling that you're addicted to, that you become addicted to the losing uh, in some ways. Does this speak to that that reward piece uh, or, or the, the craving, maybe? Yes. And the gambling is very much like you know, what my patients describe in with addiction. So, for example... With cocaine, people are actually just trying to get back to normal, you know, so it's kind of like, I don't know if the term is loss chasing and gambling or whatnot, but it's like, you know, just, just trying to scratch that itch. There's something that's itching. That's that urge. That's that craving. Itches don't feel good, <laughs> you know? So whether it's cocaine, whether it's gambling, whether it's, you know, feeling bored at work and like feeling that urge to go on a shopping, you know, on Amazon or whatever, to check out whatever's new. All of those are just about scratching that itch. And the more we scratch the itch, the itchier it gets. Mm. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that conditioning uh, doesn't explain everything. At least there's a lot of people who argue that, that I hear. Um, 
And I can hear the critics chiming in now as we talk, both from within psychology and outside of it, especially when it comes to substance-related disorders in particular. Addiction seem to have some pretty well-researched physiological mechanisms, neurological, genetic, um, the chemical nature of the substance itself. So help me to square these two issues. Does, does psychological conditioning as an explanatory model, um, in essence learning, does that explanation complement or contrast with what I see as society's predominantly physiological, biomedical understanding of addiction, at least here in the West? Do the two things go together? They do. And I would say our understanding in the West, just looking at the chemical pieces has been, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on the chemical pieces. And, and it's true as an addiction psychiatrist, you know, it's really important to treat the physiologic dependence that my patients have out, you know, withdrawing from alcohol is deadly. Withdrawing from benzodiazepines is deadly. So we really have to pay attention to all of the physiology, you know, the genetics, the receptor reorganization, you know, the, all, all of those types of things. Now, that goes hand in hand with the psychological conditioning. So, for example, uh, withdrawal doesn't feel very good. And so we can learn through negative reinforcement to make that withdrawal go away. Let's use a common example. Somebody smokes cigarettes, they get addicted to nicotine. In fact, and fun fact is nicotine is actually a toxin that plants make so that animals won't eat <laughs> as a pretty... Uh, pretty low uh, lethal dose 50. You know, if you inject nicotine yeah. into your vein, it, it's, you're not going to do well pretty quickly. So, so think of the, when people start smoking, they don't read a book and where it says, oh, cigarettes are good for me. It's when they're teenagers and they're rebelling or they're trying to be cool at school or whatever. And they're actually overcoming physiology that's saying, hey, you're smoking the cigarette. It's making you nauseated because it's a toxin. It's telling you, you shouldn't be doing this. And we're like, oh, I'll, I'll suffer through it. I'll throw up a couple of times because I want to be cool. So here we get the positive reinforcement of being cool at school that actually overrides all of this negative reinforcement of our body saying, why are you doing this? And then we get addicted to nicotine and cigarettes. So then, you know, nicotine has a half-life of about two hours. So we're smoking a cigarette every two hours. So when that withdrawal comes in, there's negative reinforcement. Withdrawal doesn't feel good. It says, go smoke a cigarette. So here you can see the interplay between the physiology and the psychology. Really, you can't separate the two. Now, you know, given what we know about how we're not just uh, slaves to the three pounds of tissue in our skull, right? That that our choices, both our choices of what we think and also our choices of what we do, uh, that these things not only ch can change our brain, but they actually routinely do. That's That's how your brain changes and adapts to its environment. So how have you seen regular mindfulness practice? This is another, of course, big part of your life, of your practice with your patients. Um, how does that help people specifically who are struggling with addictions? Well, if you look at the formulas for behavior change, they unfortunately have very little to do with willpower. And I say unfortunately because it would be great if I could, you know, my patient walks into the office and says, I want to quit smoking. I just say, just use your willpower. And you're, you know, I want to stop overeating. Just use your willpower. I want to stop worrying. Just stop worrying. You know, it doesn't work that way. So if you look at the formulas in neuroscience, it's really all about one thing, which is reward value. So if something is rewarding in our brain. It gets set up as a habit. And our brain says, hey, you know, don't, you don't even have to think about this anymore. When you see it, I'll help you do it. And we're good to go. Problem there is that we get addicted to, you know, it's whether it's nicotine, whether it's overeating, whether it's shopping or whatever. And we don't even notice, you know, it's that itch. It starts to come up and our brain says, I'm going to scratch it right away. 
And we just get into these cycles where we're not even noticing how rewarding the behavior is or how unrewarding the behavior is. So here, you know, think of mindfulness as really just bringing awareness and being curious uh, to what's happening in the situation. And that curiosity helps us see whatever's happening fresh. So it helps our brain say, hey, you know, this is a good time to check in on that reward value to see just how rewarding this is. So with my patients who want to quit smoking, what I do is I tell them to smoke, <laughs> which might sound mm-hmm. kind of crazy because your doctor's telling you to smoke. Well, I say smoke, but pay attention as you smoke. And what they start to realize is cigarettes taste like crap, right? And mm-hmm. so their brain gets what's called a negative prediction error, meaning they were predicting that a cigarette would be so rewarding, and it's not actually as rewarding as predicted. And what that does is help us become disenchanted with the behavior. Notice how willpower has no role to play there. It's really simply awareness. So that's where the mindfulness piece comes in, is I can train people to pay attention and help them really pay attention to what's happening. So for example, we've even developed digital therapeutics for addictions, whether it's smoking or even overeating or anxiety. And we did a study with our eating app, uh, this app called Eat Right Now, where we have people pay attention as they overeat. And it only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating for that reward value to drop below zero to the point Mm. where they start shifting their behavior. Somebody could have the habit of overeating for decades, yet it only takes 10 to 15 times to update that reward value, which is really important and makes sense because we don't have time to be chased 20 times by the tiger to realize, oh, that's dangerous, right? Our brains are very, very plastic and they'll change very rapidly especially, and they'll, you know, they'll change more rapidly the more we pay attention. I was going to ask you about that, you know, because if the definition that we started with of addiction is use despite adverse uh, outcomes or consequences, well, that's an adverse outcome, right? If you don't like the taste or you have a, uh, 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 you become sick by it. So is there a threshold then uh, for how much adversity or how much of an adverse reaction you need before the cognitive dissonance or whatever just sets in and, and starts to actually change something? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the answer is absolutely. So think of this as, you know, with food, for example, you know, cigarettes are a little more straightforward because you don't have to smoke to survive, but you do have to eat to survive. So I think of this as a pleasure plateau. So especially if we're hungry, we start eating and it's actually rewarding. Our brain says, hey, finally, you're filling up my stomach. And so we eat and we eat and we eat. And if we don't pay attention, we go onto that pleasure plateau where that reward value starts to drop. And then we go off the cliff and we don't even notice that we're driving off the cliff because we've just got so much momentum that we just keep going. But nobody describes eating, you know, overeating as pleasant. Whoa, it's great that my stu- I feel overstuffed. It's great that I feel totally bloated. You know, no, not at all. So here, I think it's absolutely true what you're saying. You know, we, we can really, you know, we can really pay attention and start to see where, where it shifts on its own. Mm. Dr. Judson Brewer is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Brown University, a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is Unwinding Anxiety, Train Your Brain to Heal Your Mind. That's available now everywhere. Thanks so much, Dr. Judd. My pleasure. This is the LifeWorks Living Well podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. We'll be right back. In our changing world, there is an unchanging principle for success that inspires us by improving a person's life will improve how they perform at work, 
We are LifeWorks. We are the world's leading total well-being provider. We are innovators with tech-enabled solutions. Our mission is to improve people's lives by supporting the whole person, their mental, financial, physical, and social well-being. These people are the heart of successful organizations, leading these organizations to a more resilient future and making a real difference in the world and in our communities. Improving lives, improving business. We are LifeWorks. Welcome back to Living Well. I'm Mark Hennick. Dr. Ben Sesso was trained as a child and adolescent psychiatrist with an interest in the developmental trajectory from child maltreatment to adult mental health disorders, including adult addictions. He's also the co-founder and chief medical officer for Awaken Life Sciences, and he joins us now from England. Dr. Sessa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's a great pleasure. So I'd like to start by, by you walking us through that developmental trajectory that I mentioned, to which you've dedicated so much of your, your thought and study. Um, what would you characterize, uh, or how would you characterize the path from adverse childhood experiences to later mental health disorders, and then from mental health disorders on to or, or concurrent with addictions? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting point. Um, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, one of the things we talk about so much is this concept of attachment. Attachment is this early pre-verbal reciprocal dance between uh, a child, an infant, and its primary caregiver. And it's this crucial period of development in which we learn the most fundamental parts of our psyche. What is love? What is a friend? What is a mother? What is a father? Is it okay to lie? Is it okay to cheat? Is it okay to steal? Is it okay to drop litter? You know, these, these things that we take for granted as part of our personality are formed very early on in our development. And the difficult thing is, once these pathways are formed and these personal narratives about self and the world are formed, they become very rigid um, and very difficult to shift. So if you're lucky enough to have had a positive attachment and you were loved and kissed and cuddled and played with and praised, then the chances are you're going to grow up with a healthy personality. If you were exposed to trauma and pain and abuse and humiliation as a child in these early critical periods, then you develop these very rigid ways of thinking about yourself and the world, which can be thought of as a positive neuroadaptive response at some level. It's a way of the child surviving this toxic environment of those early years. But as they grow older and go into adolescence and adulthood, those um, narratives that may have helped them survive those early years when no one was caring for them become maladaptive. And um, there's a very strong effect size between damage during this early attachment period and subsequent adult mental disorders and particularly addictions. Mm. So where does the addiction piece come in here then? Would you say that it's a, a coping mechanism predominantly for this kind of trauma or is, is there something else going on there? I think if, you're, if you are faced with a head full of negative narratives, I am useless, I am a failure, I am ugly, I am stupid, I am unloved, I am unlovable, then to some extent those are such intolerable feelings that one of the it feels like perfectly rational ways of dealing with the world is to blunt the edges, to just block everything out with sedating substances like heroin and opiates and alcohol and other, other compounds that just make life more bearable. 
because the harsh reality of living in a hostile or um, assuming hostile world and a hostile inner world is so uh, so overwhelming that addiction becomes a viable way of coping. Now, of course, mm. addiction is more complex. It's not just the psychological aspects um, related to those early psychological traumas, but it's also the physical effects of the compounds, the drugs, um, including alcohol, that the person is using. So whilst addiction can occur for anyone, even with a good attachment, simply by taking the drug, including alcohol, regularly enough, um, that can result in this habitual physical dependence, um, it is far more overrepresented in people who have this history of trauma and therefore these reduced coping strategies. Hmm. Now, in the, you know, staying with the, with the physical piece for a second, in the human development liter- literature, there's been years and volumes uh, dedicated to identifying and delineating uh, stages of growth and phases of, of development, um, particularly in, in terms of neurological and, and physiological development. Like I say, you know, faculties such as hearing and vision have well-known critical periods or sensitive periods within which they need certain inputs in order to develop properly. And if they don't get them, uh, then the person is forever altered by that. But this gets a little bit murkier when it comes to the psychology piece, right? The, the counseling piece where um, it's, not as, it's not as finite as visual perception when we're talking about emotion regulation or identity mm-hmm. formation. So I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Um, are there critical periods or the equivalent thereto for how we learn how to think and how to feel and how to act? And if so, does, does trauma and addiction, does it impact those critical periods of emotional development? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's a lot of science around the emotional development of critical periods. Um, We've known since the 30s or 40s, uh, 1930s or 40s, in the post-Freudian years, um, this importance of emotional attachment and this critical period of imprinting in which we learn these basic fundamental aspects of love and trust, etc. And there's experiments um, that have been done since that period, which have demonstrated the importance of this attachment relationship between the, the young child and the caregiver. And interruptions to that attachment with traumatic experiences. Um, as I said, they, they result in this very rigid blueprint about how we see ourselves and the world. Um, so um, there's a lot of science behind this. Um, we also know on a physical level, um, the limbic system, particularly the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that um, processes traumatic um, thoughts and feelings and experiences in response to external stimuli, um, young children who've been exposed to traumatic events have an exaggerated amygdala response. They have increased activity and connectivity within the amygdala. Now, as I said earlier, this is a positive neuroadaptive response. If you're a little three or four-year-old, it's an advantage to be terrified of the world if you're exposed to pain all the time. So you learn to not trust people. You learn to hide behind the sofa when you hear the key in the door. Um, so whilst these things can be seen as positive, positively neuroadaptive, um, they stick. And in many ways, adult mental disorders and addictions are a kind of a hangover of that small two, three, four-year-old brain who then finds all sorts of other benign things in the adult world terrifying um, when they're not actually involved in that um, abusive relationship anymore. So simple things like a queue at the post office can trigger a panic attack or rage, um, which is a benign thing. 
But so that's that's why it's so important to get this critical period of childcare correct. Um, I, I often say in my talks that we could we could empty half of the prisons and hospitals tomorrow by having good care for single parents with children under five years old. Because if we get this attachment relationship correct in those early years, we massively increase the resilience of a person's mental health. Um, And then later in life, when traumas do occur in adulthood, they can be weathered and buffered far more than the person with that fragile vulnerability due to early trauma. Now, I'm really interested in how we can relearn some of this old stuff. So, so, you know, you didn't have a great childhood as somebody who hasn't, didn't have a great childhood. I, I, I'm tempted sometimes to think, well, who has, uh, but apparently lots of people have had relatively so-called normal childhoods. Um, but it, it raises the question for me of how do we get that chance again? Do we get any do-overs, you know? And um, in some ways, I think that adolescence maybe is a, is a sort of softening of the, that, that um, those boundaries a little bit, or likewise, times of crisis seem to really potentiate us in a way that other things don't. Um, but you're also the author of two books on the therapeutic use of psychedelics in medicine, uh, The Psychedelic Renaissance and To Fathom Hell or Soar Angelic. I love that title for a book. Uh, and your company, Awaken Life Sciences, uh, also seeks to target brain circuits that drive addiction through the use of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Now, I've read elsewhere that uh, one potential mechanism for the a mechanism of action for psychedelics could be that they reopen these these critical periods, allowing for an almost more childlike relearning of old habits. So, could you speak to that a bit, as well as your your treatment approach more broadly at Awaken? Yeah, absolutely. Before I go on psychedelics, just to pick up on your first point about a person's difficult childhood um, and your question, you know, I don't wish to this this to sound doom and gloom and fatalistic, you know, if you've had a poor childhood, then, you know, forget it, nothing's going to help you. It's certainly not the case. Um, One of the positive things about the child brain is it is very resilient. Um, You may not have a great attachment with your parents or or, or family, but a good attachment with a teacher or, you know, a church member or something like that, any good attachment can sort of rescue a child from an otherwise um, poor future. So it it doesn't always have to be in a typical primary caregiver role. Um, And after all, if if there was nothing we could do for people with difficult childhoods, then I'd be out of a job. Um, There'd be no point in doing doing psychiatry at all. So of course, there are many, many ways to intervene um, for a person to overcome those childhood traumas. And getting on to psychedelics, um, what psychedelics represent are really the best, the most innovative, the most effective, and the safest new form of psychopharmacology in psychiatry. And what we're doing with psychedelics is we're absolutely targeting and um, deconstructing the current model of how we do psychiatry. At the moment, we use a whole plethora of different drugs, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, hypnotics, um, all these different drugs to dampen down the symptoms of whatever mental disorder it is. So if they're depressed, we give them an antidepressant. If they can't sleep, we give them a hypnotic. If their mood goes up and down, then we give them a mood stabilizer. And none of these drugs are actually curing the patient. All they're doing is taking off the overlying symptoms of the problem. In order to cure the patient, we need to actually tackle the underlying trauma and the psychological narratives that power the, the, the ongoing mental health problem. And psychedelics do this in a way that's very different 
from taking daily maintenance medications to just paper over the cracks. What we do with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is we provide a stable, containing, safe and trusting mental state and the influence of the medicine together with concurrent psychotherapy, which puts the patient into a position where for the first time in their life, they can actually tackle those rigid narratives that have been stuck all of their life. And one of the reasons why so many mental disorders are chronic and lifelong, um, especially addictions, very difficult to treat, is because by the time a patient is in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they've become absolute experts at not tackling those narratives. They'll do anything apart from talk about that night when they were 10 years old and that thing happened. They'll they'll use alcohol, they'll use opiates, they'll self-harm, they'll attempt suicide, they'll be in and out of hospital, um, all kinds of maladaptive behaviors to mask their symptoms. And then what psychedelic drugs do in a safe, facilitated environment with correct preparation, guidance, and integration is they allow the patient to actually go there to those forbidden, avoidant memories in a safe setting, tackle them, put them to bed, and get on with their lives. So it really is the antithesis of the way we currently prescribe medicine in psychiatry. And it's really turning on its head this maintenance drug model. Now, I just want to ask you about the the regulatory landscape, since, of course, psychedelics have been uh, either outright banned or or just frowned upon in, in many jurisdictions. What would you say is the state of uh, regulatory affairs of, of drug policy with respect to psychedelics? Is, is it starting to catch the same wave that the research community is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of it, and people talk about this psychedelic renaissance, great book, by the way, um, in, coming, in, in recent years. Um, you know, this is the second bite of the cherry. We, we, we tried it in the 50s and 60s, then the whole drug revolution happened and all the research was banned. We've got another stab at it now. And things are different now. We have, um, I think the general public are much more psychopharmacology savvy than they were back then. People can see that the really dangerous drugs in our community are things like crack cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol, heroin. Um, Everybody knows people who've used cannabis, magic mushrooms, ecstasy. And these are not big problematic drugs. They are not big public health campaign um, and public health problems. So I think that that's one of the reasons why we've got this renaissance. We've got a a more pharmacology savvy public. We've got the internet. We've got connectivity. We've got psychedelic societies. And we've also got modern neuroimaging techniques. And that's adding a sort of sciencey element to psychedelic research. It allows us to actually see what's happening within brains, which helps to... um, add scientific validity to psychedelic research. So yes, we are moving forward for all those reasons. Um, And I think another reason is maybe what you might call patient power. Patients have just have had enough of the last 50 years of this top-down biological model. They've sat on Prozac for 40 years. They've done six sessions of CBT and they're not getting better. So this is the, the time is really ripe for a new approach. Combining these two very disparate fields, psychotherapy and psychopharmacology, uh, have always been at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I've always been interested in both those things with equal measure. And what we're doing with psychedelics is we're combining those two and using focused, targeted, clever, scientific, evidence-based drug-assisted psychotherapy um, that makes the psychotherapy more effective and allows the patient to overcome these rigid narratives and 
allows them to not have to sit on a drug every day. So it, critics may think, oh, you know, here's psychiatrists with yet another drug for us. In fact, psychedelics are the antithesis of the current model. These are drugs to come off drugs. These are drugs that work in combination with psychotherapy to not have to sit on an SSRI for the rest of your life, masking symptoms. And that on its own is plenty of reason to be excited, I think. Uh, Dr. Ben Sessa is the co-founder and chief medical officer for Awaken Life Sciences. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. Thanks, Mark. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I'd like you to hear from just one more person. Glenn Davis is the Service Development Director for Breaking Free, a new digital substance use disorder treatment offered by LifeWorks. Glenn, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we just had a couple of really insightful conversations about addiction, both how they take shape and, and how they potentially could even be unwound. Now, LifeWorks recently acquired Breaking Free, a leading provider of digital substance use disorder treatment. So tell me more about what that is, both what Breaking Free is as a service, but also how it helps to treat substance use disorders digitally. Sure. So Breaking Free has been um, designed and put together by a team of um, clinical psychologists, behavioral scientists, and people with experience of um, working within the substance use treatment sector. And what we've done is effectively develop an online uh, treatment and recovery program that means people um, who want to access discrete confidential treatment can do so via any device via the internet. So what we've done is we've taken um, what frontline counsellors and, and physicians often use in terms of pen and paper and looked at the most evidence-based uh, strategies and skills that people learn to help them overcome their difficulties with addiction. And we've digitized them and made it very interactive and user-friendly. So loads of multimedia components, the most up-to-date science that can support people with their substance use goals, whether that's to cut down or completely stop altogether. Now, I understand that the service is available publicly in some places. Uh, so can you tell me where, uh, or some of the places anyway, where it might be available, but also where people might be able to learn more and potentially get access to this? Sure. So the program is available across a number of jurisdictions. So, for example, any resident of Ontario or Newfoundland and Labrador, um, or indeed people across the UK can just access the program um, via the website. So they can just go to uh, breakingfreeonline.ca or breakingfreeonline.com and access the intervention using their postcode. Um, now, the program is also being made available via um, LifeWorks to their other um, customers. So it's being integrated alongside Ability CBT, for example, and other ICBT offerings uh, from LifeWorks. So you can find out more either by going to breakingfreegroup.com uh, or indeed lifeworks.com. Uh, Thank you so much. Glenn Davies is the Service Development Director for Breaking Free by LifeWorks. Thanks so much for joining me today, Glenn. Thanks very much. Take care. That's it for us this week on Living Well. Many thanks to all of my guests today, and thanks to you, as always, for listening. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening or watching, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else. You can go back and check out all the episodes from our three seasons so far on any of those platforms, as well as at livingwellpod.com. You can connect with me directly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Mark Hennick, that's M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K, 
And let me know what you thought about our show today. If you found it helpful, please do share it with all of your networks, with your family and friends and with everybody else. Thanks again for the gift of your time. Until next time, I've been your host, Mark Hennick. Take care and live well. Thank you.